You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is James. I know we have some visitors just with uh, the parent commissioning here this morning, but I'm on staff here at the church, and it's a joy to work with families and youth and small groups, and would love to meet you after service if, if possible. So we are continuing, in case you've missed a few weeks, we're continuing our annual series, our five-week series of, of Madison Multiply Sermon Series that we entitled Prayers for Our City. And if this is your first time with us, this is our last message, so I'm sorry. But you can go back into our podcast and listen to the other four uh, sermons. But if you've been with us, you know we've been exploring some biblical prayers uh, that, that call us in sharing God's heart for his kingdom to come in Madison as it is in heaven. And so we've looked at some prayers that center around looking at, at boldness and, and justice and, and mercy and for laborers. And for us today, we're looking at this prayer of unity. And as we engage in this series, I don't know about you, but for me, it's just a great reminder to to remember just our shared mission as a collective of churches of Madison Multiply, that we want to saturate Madison and Dane County with healthy, gospel-centered churches, making disciples, engaging their communities, and planting more churches. And we want to live out this vision, these biblical prayers, literally like one prayer at a time. And for us today, as I've said, we're going to look at this idea of, of praying for unity, of dwelling together in unity. So let's just, let's just recenter, reset, at least for myself, and let's just turn to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, we love you, and we're so thankful to spend these moments together sitting under your word. And we pray by the power of your spirit that you would make this text out of Psalm 130 come alive to us. And to put us to life this morning. We pray for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, by way of introduction, um, this was a, about a month ago. I, I, recent, I read about a young pastor who took over a pastorate at a church. And as he, he came into this, this church, as he was a, a young guy just starting out, he, he found out as he came into this established church that the church was actually deeply divided. And some of the people wanted to sit down during his weekly pastoral prayer. They wanted to sit down. And and others, the other half, they wanted to stand up during this time of prayer. That was the division. And the people who wanted to sit down, they were convinced that they had it right. Telling this young guy, this is the tradition ever since the beginning of the church. Long before you got here, this is what we've been doing. But those who wanted to stand also were convinced of the same thing. So this young guy, he couldn't figure out what to do with this very deeply divided congregation. So he went about finding the guy who started this church and discovering he lived in a nursing home. He went there and said to this founding pastor, tell me, when you started this church, did people sit down during your weekly prayer or your pastoral prayer? And the the founding Pastor replied, no, they didn't. And the young pastor was excited, and he exclaimed, great! So that's the tradition, people stand during prayer. And this old man said, no, that's not the tradition. The young pastor was confused, 
And he looked at this old man and said, listen, I need help. It's absolute chaos in the congregation. Some people think we should sit during this prayer. Some people think we should stand. And they're at each other's throats. And the old pastor looked at this young guy right in the eyes and said, now that's the tradition. (laughs) From the very beginning, it was a divided church. You see, there's nothing quite like experiencing unity, is there? If you've been in a church in the past filled by disagreement and disunity, you understand fully the blessing of a unified church. As you and I experiencing a country just seemingly increasingly divided by our politics, we can wistfully remember back to a time of of greater national unity. When you and I find ourselves in the midst of divisive relationships in and, and home or at work and, and things are chaotic, we, we value uh, peace and, and for a unity, it just skyrockets, it leaps off the page, doesn't it? There's nothing quite like unity in our relationships, is there? Why? Because unity, this coming together in a harmony of relationships is our design. God's design. Turn with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, right in the middle of your Bible. And in these three very short verses, the psalmist will see paints not one, but two pictures of unity that I pray in return. We say, I've got to have that in my life. I want to be a part of that. So so here's our direction this morning. One, to discover what God's heart is concerning unity. What is God's heart? And then secondly, why is it important that I pray for this? And then lastly, our response. So what is God's heart? Why is it important? And what is my response? Are we ready? That wasn't convincing. But giddy up, let's go. God's heart, verse 1. David, who wrote this psalm, says this, Behold, and this is Old Testament language for saying, Listen up, y'all. I'm about to say something, and it's important, and you better listen. Pay attention. Behold, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So what is God's heart? It's very straightforward, isn't it? The psalmist tells us of brothers dwelling in unity. And it's in this expression of brothers dwelling in unity that really communicates two realities of God's heart that I want us to see. And the first is this term of of brothers. Of brothers dwelling in unity. It communicates an objective reality that formally binds two individuals together, whether by blood or by covenant. They are of the same family. Brothers. And secondly, as we look at this phrase, brothers, they're dwelling in unity. This word dwelling communicates that these brothers have intentionally chosen to be in proximity with one another. They're dwelling together, not apart. You put these two realities together, and I think you find, discover the fullness of God's heart, that his people, the family of God, brothers and sisters, would dwell together in unity. So if that's the heart of God, 
you would imagine as you begin to flip open the pages of your Bible that you would find stories upon stories upon stories upon stories of brotherly love and harmony and unity. Examples for us to live by. These are things we should strive for, right? But it's not there, is it? The very first brothers mentioned in the Bible, Cain and Abel, is not a story of brotherly love, but of brotherly hate, of brotherly envy, of brotherly murder. Flip a few more pages in Genesis and you find the younger son of of Abraham, Isaac, ridicules his older brother Ishmael so much so that Abraham has to pack the bags of, of, of Ishmael and send him away. A story or two later, we read of of two more brothers, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, who from the get-go right out of the womb are sparring and jostling for control of the family. Continue on, you have the story of Joseph, sold into slavery, slavery and left to die by his own brothers who are consumed by jealousy and contempt. The Genesis record is only the beginning Should I keep going? You're too slow in responding. Moses experienced betrayal from his own brother and sister. David, who wrote this psalm, was threatened and tried to be put to death by his own father-in-law, Saul, right? We know this as we're going through the life of David. And later on, his own son kicks him out of his kingdom. And Jesus, his own brothers, possessed such contempt towards his earthly ministry that they labeled Jesus as crazy, A man out of his mind. You see, from the very beginning of time, all people have pushed against God's design for unity. And we see this so clearly as we flip through the pages of our Bible. And that disunity is is driven by this this self-focus and self-pride, both of which are of great supply amongst humankind. And we don't have to go far to find it. We don't have to search for it because it's in us, all of us. So so if we cannot look to, to one another or within ourselves for this unity that this psalm is really rejoicing in and singing in, where do we find, or where do we look to have this unity? The Apostle Paul helps us out in Ephesians. You can turn there, Ephesians chapter 1, or it should be on the screen as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul writes, making known, or God, talking about God, God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So see, unity, as we see here, has, has been uh, the, God's great plan throughout all of time. And that unity is only accomplished or it's entirely connected to the person of Jesus. That's only by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we have unity first with God our Father, and secondly, as a result, with one another. Paul continues in chapter 2, in verse 13, saying, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both five, no, who has made us both one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, in crushing his own body, Jesus crushes every hostility between Jew and Gentile and creates a new humanity, a new people, the people of God. Unity, what Paul is saying, true unity, lasting unity is never achieved or will never be produced within or by ourselves. That will never work. It will never last. It will never endure. Rather, enduring unity is a divine gift of a Godward gaze. We have to look outside of ourselves and place our gaze first upon God and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Many of us who have been in church for a while, don't let this escape you, that Jesus has purchased our union with God and our unity with one another. It wasn't cheap. It cost Jesus his life. Don't miss this. This is God's heart. This is God's heart. So important. God's heart, a diverse people, his people, dwelling together in perfect unity. So why should I pray for unity in this church? Why should I pray for unity? Well, again, go back to Psalm 133. And look at the two words that the psalmist uses to describe brothers dwelling in unity. What are they? He calls it good and pleasant. It's good and pleasant. But if you think about it, not many things in life are actually both good and pleasant, right? A lot of things in life we find good are actually unpleasant. A lot of things that we find pleasant are not good. Take, for instance, broccoli. (laughs) It's good for my nutrition, but not pleasant to my belly. But... Ice cream, very pleasant, had some last night for my belly, but it's not good for my nutrition. But here the psalmist says unity is both what? Good and pleasant. When the psalmist expresses that this unity is good, the psalmist is saying, well, this is how life ought to be lived. This is how life ought to be lived. It's, in a sense, unity is composed or made up of goodness. It's morally right. It's how life ought to be lived. But it's not only something I ought to do in my life. The psalmist says at the same time, it's actually pleasant. Meaning unity is actually what I desire in my life. Like that bowl of ice cream I had last night, unity is exactly what I desire. It's pleasant. I rejoice in it. I sing in it. And bonus, it's good for me. What I tried to say there, John Piper says in like seven words, unity is both our duty and our delight. That's like gold right there. Unity is both our duty and our delight. And to amplify how this is true, the psalmist will continue by painting two pictures for how this is true. Two pictures. Picture one, hang with me here, is beard oil, like beard. Beard oil, that's the first picture, the first painting. And the second painting is Mountain Dew. 
Sounds like a perfect middle school boy devotion, right? (laughs) Verse 2, the psalmist says, It is like, what is the it? It is this good and pleasant unity. That is what it is. So this, this unity is like something, right? And what does the psalmist say in this first painting? This good and pleasant unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, I I doubt many of you have ever compared unity to that of like this dripping oil that's making a mess, right? This is like, is this like an abstract painting that I don't quite understand? Like, is this what's happening on? That's least, that was my initial response when I read this. But trust me, There's something here that I want you to see because it's a compelling picture of unity that amplifies our understanding. So to find the meaning of this this painting that David is is doing, we have to perhaps understand why he chose this image. So, So consider just the different aspects of this oil, which is called precious oil. What is what are some different aspects of this precious oil? For David's understanding. I think there's three probably main ones that we could come up with. One, given the hot and dry Middle Eastern climate, this oil dripping down Aaron's head and, and beard and onto his clothes, it really conveys like a soothing aspect. It offers a picture of like needed relief and refreshment to a sun-parched and dry skin. It's, it's maybe symbolic of divine blessing that God bestows. Secondly, we can think of just the priestly tasks. Like, what did they do all day? They slaughtered animals. Imagine the stench that comes with that task, right? And if we're to look back at the original account in in Exodus 30, we're told that this oil is made of the finest spices and would have produced a wonderful fragrance and aroma. And thirdly, and probably most compelling is the third one here, is, is given Aaron, who's the brother of Moses here, role as the high priest, the first priest, An anointing of this oil carries an aspect of divine sacredness, of holy consecration. And again, in Exodus 30, we we see this, where God says, You shall anoint Aaron, talking to Moses and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. So three things. We see symbolic blessing. We see fragrant aroma. And we see this divine and, and holy consecration. All of, these, all of these are wonderful aspects for why David calls it this precious oil, right? But I'm not convinced it's actually any of these aspects which is the emphasis of this metaphor. Why? Because the emphasis, I believe, has a lot less to do with the oil itself and a lot more to do with what the oil is doing. And what is the oil doing? Well, the oil is running down everywhere and dripping onto everything, right? It's beginning, this oil, is, it begins on the, the hair of Aaron, it moves to his face and onto his beard, and then just gets all over his robe, his clothes. And if you ask me, this sounds like a lot less of the sacred moment that it most truly is, and a lot more like a game I'd play at youth group, like messy game night. 
And I don't have much experience in, in anointing, but I'd assume like a small, like, you know, shampoo-sized squirt on the head, like, that'd be good, suffice. Like, what is the purpose of all this oil spilling down everywhere onto the beard and onto the clothes? That's, that, that's just being messy. That's being unkind in a lot of ways, right? But listen up. In the mess of all of this oil, I believe, lies the reason the psalmist, psalmist has chosen this particular image. I'm going to make a statement, and all you're going to say amen to this. It's going to be so profound. The reason that this is all so messy is because there's so much oil. Most obvious statement of the year, right? Kind of obvious. But don't miss what's happening. It's messy because of the vast, 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 vast excess of oil being dispensed on the head of Aaron. Maybe this painting is becoming a little more clearer. Aaron's a sinner, just like you and I. And he deserves not even a single drop of this most precious oil on his head. Yet he receives not only a drop, but this excessive pouring of this oil all over. Excessive means it's more than what's needed. Excessive means it's more than what's deserved. And that's the comparison that's being made in regard to our unity. That good and pleasant unity, the oneness of the church, is an excessive gift from God. It's more than we deserve. You see, every day that this church lives and ministers in deep and joyful camaraderie, we receive a gift far beyond what we deserve. We can't create this unity on our own. We know all too well what we can create, which is division and disunity, right? We all have images of of that, examples of that. It's more than we deserve. Painting number one, beard oil. An excessive gift from God. Painting number two, Mountain Dew. I haven't had Mountain Dew in years. Painting two, Mountain Dew, verse three. It's like, again, this is again referring to this good, uh, good and pleasant unity. It is like something. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And to understand this, this painting, we have to understand a little bit of geography. And so on the screen should be a picture of, actually, this is Mount Hermon as we would see it today. And it's an elevation of 9,200 feet. It, it was and still is like the highest mountain in this region. And, and it would have been the, um, it would be at the very northern border of David's existing kingdom. So this is the very top of Israel, of David's kingdom. And 120 miles south of where Mount Hermon was, you'd find Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, where the temple of God resided. And it's important to know that Mount Hermon, the height of this mountain right here, is four times the height of Zion. And at that elevation, Mount Hermon, it's it's known for accumulating much dew, even to present day. But you can also see it accumulates a lot of snow. 
And at the base of this mountain is actually, it feeds into the Jordan River. And if you know a little biblical geography, you know the Jordan River weaves its way through Israel. It feeds into the Sea of Galilee and further down into the Dead Sea. And it's also important to know that Israel during the summer receives like little to no rain. It's a hot and dry land. And so if you Google right now Mount Hermon, you'll find today even it's considered one of the greatest resources of the entire region. For the mountain captures, whether it's by the snowfall or by the dew, this great amount of precipitation that in return becomes vital source of life-sustaining water to all those who live below the mountain. You starting to see the meaning of this picture? That in a hot and dry land, there's, there's a life-sustaining stream running all the way from Hermon, 120 miles to Jerusalem. In a land with limited access to water, there's been made provision from this mountain of life-sustaining water freely flowing to every person living in this land. That's the comparison that's being made to our unity. That this good and pleasant unity, the oneness of the church, it becomes like life-giving, life-sustaining gift to all those around us. Unity brings life. Unity refreshes, it satisfies, it's exactly what a parched and dry land needs. In fact, it's been said the visible unity of the church is the power of the gospel to our world. And in our context to Madison, Jesus says this in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, Jesus' words, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Why? That they, oh, sorry, sorry, I, I did this last time too. That they are in I and you, and that you also may be in us. Why? So that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church, this dwelling together in harmony, is like life giving, life sustaining moisture coming from Mount Hermon to all those around us. The visible unity of the church is the power of the gospel to Madison. With unity, the mission of God is accomplished. Without we, not God, we fail. Painting number two, Mountain Dew. A life-giving, life-sustaining gift. So, So why do I... Join God's heart and pray for unity. Why would I use my time, my limited time in life to pray for this church to be unified? Well, one, it's, it's good and pleasant. It's our duty and our delight. And I hope that these, these biblical paintings of, of beard oil and Mountain Dew perhaps shape our prayers for how we might frame up this prayer. For example, it's good to just allow our prayers to be shaped by these images. And we can pray the following. This is a great prayer that, Father God, I pray for your gift of unity to drip down the faces of our elder team as they lead us in vision and mission. That's a great prayer. We're praying for unity for our church. 
Father God, I pray for your gift of unity to drip down the faces of our city group as we demonstrate and declare who we are in our neighborhood. We can't necessarily create on our own this unity as we gather in our city groups, but we look to God with this God word gaze. Create in us this unity. May it drip down our faces. It's a gift. And Father, I, I pray for unity amongst our network of churches and leaders and people that we might be streams of water, life-sustaining, life-giving, mountain dew, freely flowing to all who live in this parched land in need of a drink of your eternal life. These are great prayers to be praying as we think about this church and our witness to our community. As we Consider our response to this. May our prayers be shaped and join with God's heart, but may our lives as well. So just one practical consideration as we think of our response this morning. In verse 3, the second half, David concludes by saying, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. And that's a significant blessing, right? Life forevermore, eternal life, which makes at least me say, well, where is the there? For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing. And many who are obviously very much more smarter than me would argue that this is a reference to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. And that makes a lot of sense because where God dwells, there you find life. But as I've thought about it, I thought perhaps maybe there's some symbolic meaning in this as well. That when God's people come together in perfect harmony, come together in unity, that there, where they have gathered together as one, there is blessing. There is life forevermore. What I'm trying to say is this is, I think something happens when God's people gather together on a Sunday morning like this. Something happens. I think something happens when we gather together every week as a city group, as we're there together, gathered in the same room with people that might be far different from us or people that might drive us crazy, but we're there together possessing this God-word gaze, focused and fixated on his cross in the empty tomb. Author Jonathan Lehman wrote this. Jesus organized Christianity this way. He means to center our Christianity around regularly gathering together, seeing one another, learning from one another, encouraging and correcting one another, and loving one another. Spiritual things happen when Christians stand elbow to elbow, breathe the same air, join our voices in song, hear the same sermon, and partake of the one bread. You look around and think, I'm not alone in this faith. What might we do together for there for there where we gather together as one the lord has commended commanded blessing life forevermore a few olympics ago you may remember in a 5,000 women's meter race a runner from new zealand happened to trip and fall and as she tripped and fell she also tripped the runner next to her And the runner next to her bent down and picked up this New Zealand runner. And in doing so, it's been quoted that she whispered into this New Zealand runner's ears, this is the Olympic Games. You can't 
give up. I love that picture. I love that picture. What if the church was more like that? What if we whispered into each other's ears, this is the life God's called you to live. You can't give up. This is your marriage. You you can't give up. These are your kids. You can't give up. This is your faith. You can't give up. What if that's what church was like or became more like? Gathering together with this God-word gaze, possessing this singular mission of encouraging each other to continue to press on, that it's worth it. And just as a, a point of perhaps really specific application, just after this service, you'll have elders and staff up here who would love to pray with you, to rejoice with you, to share this life with you, and invite you to come forward and to, to pray with those up front. This was a psalm that was well known to the people of God. It was sung often. If you look at the header of this psalm, you'll see that it's, it's probably as a header of a song of ascent. Three times a year, the people of Israel would leave their homes and travel to Jerusalem for a religious celebration and feast. And surprisingly, without a Spotify playlist, they, had to, they actually had to open a book and, and, and find songs that they would sing together. It's very foreign to us, I know. There's a written collection of songs, and this was known as the Song of Ascents, which this psalm is a part of. And as these pilgrims, the people of God, made their way to Jerusalem for this feast or celebration, they would, they would have to look up to Mount Zion. It, is a, it has a significant elevation. They would have to, as they're walking, look up to Mount Zion to the place where they were going, to the, to the hill where God resided. But here, as they looked up, as they looked up to where they're going, what they would see is, as they're looking up to the mountain where God resided, they would see all those around them. And they're also looking up to this very same place where God resided, Mount Zion. You see, even the ancient people of God were not all that similar. There's a vast difference in the people of God. There were coastal people and there were the mountain people. You had the small tribes of Benjamin, the massive tribes of Manasseh. You had the warriors, the, the musicians. There are vast differences in the people of God. There always has been. And so too today, God would have his pilgrims, you and I, uh, despite our differences, possessing this same shared, looking up Godward gaze. And in Jesus, whose very name, his title, means anointed, we now experience what those ancient pilgrims long for and hope for. What they saw in Zion as they went there, we now have in Jesus. And the precious anointing oil of God, which ran down the beard of Jesus, has dripped onto us his body. The church, God's family, a diverse people, brothers and sisters, old and young, married and single, rich and poor. Friends, may we join God's heart. As a diverse people, God's family, sharing together this God word gaze, seeking earnestly to dwell together in unity. Would you pray with me?
Father God, we worship you in this moment, recognizing that without you, we are nothing. You have purchased our union with you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who might not have an understanding of you, Jesus, as their Savior and Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit and word, put them to life to understand clearly the meaning of the gospel and why you, Jesus, came to this earth. I pray for those of us who have placed our faith in you, Jesus, that we would remember and and celebrate and to earnestly desire to grow in our understanding of our union with you and how that affects our unity and relationship with others. Lord, I pray that this church and, and every other church in Madison would be a visible power of your gospel to save and to redeem your people. Lord, I pray that to be so. I pray as we regather in city groups starting this coming week that we would be a people that earnestly seeks to serve and love and encourage and champion one another as we press on in our faith. We thank you for this blessing, this gift that you've given to us of one another to help encourage and to spur us on. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen.